Amen. Would you please bow with me in prayer this morning? Father in heaven, we just give you thanks, Lord, for your enduring love. Father, thank you for setting your heart upon us and determining, Lord, that you would redeem us by sending your son to die on the cross in our place, on our, in our behalf, for our sin. We say thank you, Lord. This morning, as we worship you, as your people gather to worship you, we pray, Father, that it would be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. And we know that it is because of the righteousness of Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. We want to just say good morning to all of you and welcome all of you to this gathering of First Baptist Church. We have a few visitors in the room this morning, and we want to say good morning to you, our visitors, as well as all of those of you following online at home uh, by means of Facebook and a handful of you which are still following online. Uh, you're not following online. You're listening on the radio. And one, in the, one couple in particular that I want to just point out this morning uh, L and Rose Hennig. I had the joy of, uh, yeah, they're listening. Give them a hand. <laughs> they're, they're at an advantage. They live in the apartment building just right behind the church here. So they, they pick up the signal loud and clear and they, they tune in every morning. So good morning to you, L and Rose. And um, we just want to greet all of you and welcome all of you here this morning. And again, for those of you who are curious to draw close to the church, but for um, reasons of health, maybe perhaps you're immunocompromised, you're not sure you're comfortable entering into the church, uh, we just want to continue to make you aware that you're more than welcome to come and park in our parking lot and, uh, and listen in on the radio in your car. And we would love to have you do that. If you are interested, you tune in. It's on the FM dial at 89.5, and you're more than welcome to tune in. So we just want to say a special hello to the folks at Ponderosa as well as Rose and Elle this morning. A couple of announcements we just want to make you aware of before we continue in our worship this morning. Um, for those of you who are here in the main sanctuary or in the balcony, in the event that you need to use a washroom, we want you to know that you're more than welcome to do that. You just go down the stairs all the way to the basement, and either one of those washrooms, men's or women's washrooms, you're more than welcome. And again, for those of you who have kids, you're coming and you're bringing your kids, and we just want to remind you that in order to have that gathering of 50 here, we have to count our kids as a separate gathering, which means they need to be taken through the back door of the church building downstairs for Sunday school at the start of the worship service. And that allows us to have more people overall in the building. So just want to make you aware of that. And of course, you're free to pick them up at the conclusion of the worship service. For those of you in the fireside room who are watching along in the fireside room, your designated washroom is the washroom in what was the old nursery and has now become our chair storage room. So make your way in there and uh, that's for you to use. A couple of things... Uh, coming up this week, we have the summer movie series, The Chosen, starting Wednesday evening at 7.30. So Wednesday, July 8th at 7.30. I've had a chance to watch this series. It's, uh, it's a great series. Of course, uh, the writer, director, and producers take a few artistic liberties in terms of the presentation. But nevertheless, we feel it's a faithful representation of the scriptures. And uh, it, it really presents the life of Christ in a very captivating way through the viewpoint, the perspective of his disciples. And so we invite you to join us Wednesday evening at 7.30. We're going to watch the, we'll watch every week, we'll watch a, a, an episode from the series, and that will then be followed by uh, a Bible study just reviewing the scriptures that the series touches on. So I just want to make you aware of that. Um, we will also at this time still be praying 
uh, for our community, for our city, Canada, and for all of you. And so if you have any prayer requests, if you're not able to make it and share those prayer requests with us in person, by all means, just email us here at the church or phone us, talk to Alicia Patterson, our church secretary. Let us know how we can pray for you. We would love the opportunity and the privilege to do so. Um, we have a ladies' Bible study that is coming up on Saturday. That's being led by Lindsay Pasteur, and uh, it's going, they're working their way through the book of Titus. And so if you'd like more details about that, just give her a call. And want to remind you once again of Operation Christmas Child. Not just a thing that we do in November, December. Uh, we're working on it all year round. And so if uh, you're interested in participating in that, this month, Jill Uinition is looking for donations such as washcloths, bars of soap, Soap holders, toothbrushes, things of that nature. It's the hygiene. You might say July is the month of hygiene for Operation Christmas Child. So any of those kinds of products that you want to put in a shoebox, just touch base with Jill. Uh, or again, you can just phone us here at the church and let us know. We can, we can put you in touch with her. Next Sunday will be our July quarterly business meeting. Uh, and we have a few things we want to make you aware of. Of course, we'll have the, a full financial report bringing you up to speed in terms of how the church has been doing for the six months, uh, first six months of the year. Um, but we also just want to present to you uh, something that we are considering and studying, uh, which is the option at some point in the future to potentially alter our constitution and bylaws to allow for digital business meetings. Given the pandemic of COVID-19, uh, we are required by BC Societies Act to continue to have business meetings. But of course, what do you do when there's a pandemic on and no one wants to get too close to each other? And so something that our, our bylaws expressly prohibit is any kind of voting by proxy or any kind of digital me meeting. And there are good reasons for that. Um, but we want to look at some options potentially in terms of how we might uh, just put a clause in there that says... You know, in the event of a global pandemic, if the church needs to, as a last resort, we can go with a digital meeting of some form. So we'll be presenting that with, to you as well. You can expect an agenda at some point this week. Again, we won't be handing out any paper copies of uh, budgets or agenda items or anything like that. Uh, just we'll send you an email, and uh, you can review that email. And then the, the quarterly business meeting will be next week, Sunday, uh, at 1.30. So it'll be after the worship service I'm sorry, at 1. It's at 1 p.m. It'll be after the worship service uh, next Sunday. So you go and grab a bite to eat and come back here, and we'll have our, our business meeting. And that about does it for announcements this morning. And so for those of you who are following online at home, this is a time just to remind you of uh, our offering. Uh, this is the time where we would normally give an offering to the Lord. And for those of you who are gathered here, we will not be passing an offering plate, but I just want to remind you that as you leave the worship service this morning, we have an offering box on the back wall, both here in the main sanctuary as well as in the fireside room. And so uh, if you have an offering, you buy it, by all means just drop that in the box on your way out this morning. And with that said, let's just take a moment and go before the Lord and, uh, and give, give thanks to the Lord for all that he has given to us. Would you please bow with me in prayer? Father in heaven, we just say thank you for your provision, for your care for us, for the fact, Lord, that you meet our every need. Father, we recognize that everything that we have comes from your hand. And we recognize, Lord, that as we give back to you, this is a privilege which you ultimately empower in us by providing for us. We recognize, Lord, that it's really out of the abundance of all that you have given to us that we give to you, and therefore our giving to you is an act of further faith and dependence upon you. 
And so this full morning, Lord, as your people prepare their hearts to give, we just ask, Lord, that you would just continue to remind us that you are in control, that you are our heavenly Father, and that you meet our every need. We pray, God, that as we sacrifice, you would bless this humble offering, that you would multiply it and use it, Lord, to exalt your son's name over all the earth. We pray, God, this morning that you would take this offering and use it to meet the needs of missionaries and gospel workers around the world, that from where the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun, wherever there are people, that the name of Christ, that the freedom and the forgiveness of the cross could be proclaimed. We pray, Lord, that you would exalt Jesus' name. And it is in his name that we pray this morning. Amen. Now I'm going to invite Shauna Dassault to come up this morning for our scripture reading. And church, as you are able, would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's word?
give thanks to the Lord. You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning as we continue to work our way through the book of Acts. We are into Acts chapter 16. Last week I uh, mentioned we'd be headed this way, and uh, there was a cheer that rose up from the congregation. No more are we in Acts chapter 15. We've turned the page, and indeed we have turned the page. But we find, as we're working our way through Acts 16, that there is still some backward glances to what happened in chapter 15. And we'll be taking a look at that this morning. As we work our way through the text this morning, I want you to be particularly um, attentive to the idea of freedom. The fact that Christ has set us free from our sin, he has set us free from the demands of the law. We are free in Christ. But now the question is, what will we do with that freedom? I'd like to just draw your attention to one particular verse, verse 3. We'll read this and then... Uh, We'll pray and we'll get to work. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was Greek. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word, for the efforts of these early missionaries on this second of Paul's missionary journeys. We thank you, Lord, for their courage and their steadfastness in proclaiming the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that because your hand was with them, hearts were receptive to the freedom of Christ, to the good news of the cross. Churches were planted, and that good news has come down to us today. We just say thank you for that, Lord. As your people this morning on the far side of the earth and thousands of years later reflect on this journey. Our prayer to you this morning, Lord, and for many, many, many Sundays to follow, is that you would show us how we, Lord, can find joy and freedom in you and in the proclamation of the gospel to our friends and our neighbors. Lord, we pray that your spirit would open our eyes to the happiness that is found in evangelism. We pray that you would do that this morning. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Many, many, many years ago in the late 1950s, there was a gentleman who immigrated to Canada. He managed to escape from Ukraine. Upon his arrival here in the United States, having successfully left behind Ukraine, having arrived in the United States, He decided he wanted to uh, get to know a little bit of the countryside that he was moving to. And so he found to his surprise that he was able to rent a car, something that was completely unheard of back in his former Soviet country. And he was able to drive around looking at different landscapes. And one day he found himself touring through Yellowstone Park, and he had parked his car at a hotel and decided he would just hike for quite a ways and see the, the landscape on foot. In his former country, there was a curfew that was mandated. At dark, all the streets needed to be cleared and everybody needed to be home. There was, there, you were not allowed out of your home or on the streets. If they caught you on the streets after dark, of course, you'd be imprisoned. 
And so this man lost track of the time. He had been hiking through the, the wilderness and just enjoying the sights of nature. And then it occurred to him that the hour had grown far late and there was no way that he was going to be able to hike back to his hotel in time to make the curfew. And so he flagged down a, a gentleman that was driving on the road and he said, I need your help. I need you to give me a lift back to my hotel. I don't want to get caught out after dark. To which the American couldn't figure out what it was he was on about and they began to discuss, of course, he's speaking to him in a thick accent, and it finally occurred to the gentleman that he was from Soviet Ukraine, and he was still thinking that he had to abide by the oppressive rules of that totalitarian dictatorship. And he said, here in America, you can be out as late and as long as you want, to which this gentleman was flabbergasted. He thought, surely there's a curfew after dark. But then the question came to him, and he posed it to this American driver on the road. What should I do after dark? Well, that's a fairly decent question, but it's one that you can only ask if you have the freedom to stay out after the sun has set. As we encounter Timothy this morning, as we meet this protege of the Apostle Paul, we're going to find a fellow that with Paul is going to take upon himself the task of going on the second missionary journey with Paul, proclaiming the gospel, living in the freedom that Christ has purchased for him. But one of the questions I want you to reflect upon this morning as we look at this text is, how does Timothy embrace that freedom? What does he do with that freedom? We pick it up in verse 1, chapter 16. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. Recall from Acts chapter 15, he's got Silas who is accompanying him. Most likely, though he's not mentioned specifically, Titus is also with him. And he is journeying. He doesn't go the way he went on the first missionary journey. He doesn't go to the island. He goes by land route up into uh, what is southern Galatia. They leave Antioch, they pass through Syria, they then enter into Cilicia, crossing the Trans Mountains through a pass called the Cilician Gates. The route would have taken Paul very, very close to, and perhaps even he stopped off at his hometown of Tarsus. But Luke doesn't mention anything about that. His focus is elsewhere. Moving on to Galatia, they first come to Derby, and then they come to Lystra, which is the opposite of the first missionary journey, because this time they're traveling westward, whereas in the first missionary journey they had landed and traveled eastward. So they come first to Derby, and then they come to Lystra, and it is in Lystra that the text tells us rather significantly that Paul meets Timothy. He meets him in Lystra. Now, Timothy and his mother, uh, we can surmise, we, we speculate, and it's a, good, it's a good speculation. Timothy and his mother were probably converted, that is, they became Christians, probably during Paul's first missionary journey to the area, which happened probably sometime around 46, 47 A.D., there is a letter which Paul then wrote to the churches in southern Galatia, the letter of Galatians, which he probably mailed to them sometime in 48, 49 AD. And of course, we have the events recorded for us in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council, in which they had this great debate arguing over whether or not circumcision was necessary, what was necessary in order to be saved. 
And now here Paul is returning to that same area, probably sometime around 52, 53, maybe 54 AD, four, three, four years after the Jerusalem Council, which means, as most scholars understand Timothy to be around 20, 18 to 20 years of age at this point in time, it means that about six to eight years have passed since Paul was there previously, which means that Timothy would have encountered Paul on his first missionary journey sometime around the age of 12 or 13. Now Paul is returning, and this young, young man has grown up. He's become a young man, and he is well spoken of by all the brothers. That's what it says there in verse 2. He was well spoken of by the brothers. Notice this, at Lystra as well as at Iconium. There is some distance that separates these towns. It'd be about a day's journey between them. It's not an insurmountable distance. But if you think about it, this man is well known in his hometown as well as the city right, right down the road. And that means he is somewhat of a significant leader within the church, probably, within the church there at, at Lystra as well as at Derby. But there's a problem. Paul sees this young man, he sees his reputation, he sees how he's working and serving, and he decides he wants to take him with him to be a missionary, to preach the gospel. And in verse 3, it says that he had to take him and circumcise him because of the Jews who were in those places. Now, how does that even come up in casual conversation? (laughs) Have you ever wondered? I mean, uh, I've lived here in Kamloops now for 12, going on 13 years. And I can tell you on the fingers of one hand how many times I've been asked whether or not I was circumcised. It just does not come up in ordinary conversation. And uh, for those of you that I'm really close to, you know I've never asked you about that sort of thing either. Okay? So it's like, hey, I'm Paul. Hey, I'm Timothy. So tell me, are you circumcised? I mean, I'm not really sure how that conversation happens or how you discuss that sort of thing without it being at least somewhat awkward. I mean, I I spent a good chunk of my week this week just trying to think how this would arise. But there's a bigger question. Why even bother circumcising Timothy if it's true, as the Jerusalem Council just established, that circumcision is not even necessary. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to convert to Judaism. You don't have to follow the Mosaic law in order to be saved. They have established that salvation is based entirely and exclusively on the finished work of Jesus Christ dying on the cross, having lived a perfect, sinless life, having honored and fulfilled every aspect of the old covenant, having followed the Mosaic law to a T, having established a perfect righteousness, dying a death he did not deserve in our place, bearing our sins upon himself for all the ways in which we have fallen short and failed. And it is because of our faith in Christ and what he did on that cross six hours, one painful Friday afternoon, that we now, by faith, and hope in him can be forgiven, redeemed, reconciled to the Father, adopted into the people of God. Why circumcision? We've just spent the last four to six years arguing over the fact that circumcision and following the Mosaic law is not necessary. Why now? 
And there are other reasons why we would pose this question, not the least of which is one of Paul's traveling companions, another young man by the name of Titus. Don't flip there, just listen. In Galatians chapter 2, and remember, the letter of Galatians was written before the Jerusalem council, and we know this because if the church in Jerusalem had convened with the apostles and the elders and had reached the verdict that they reached, and if that event had happened before the letter of Galatians had been written, it certainly would have shown up in the letter in Galatians. Because it does not, we know Paul wrote this letter to address the concern of circumcision and following the Mosaic law before the Jerusalem council. He makes this statement, don't flip there, just listen, in Galatians chapter 2, recounting to these churches at Lystra and Derby about his early life as an apostle, he says, after 14 years, I went up again from Antioch to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went there because of a revelation, and I set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. He says, I did this in order to make sure that I wasn't running or that I hadn't run in vain. He wants to make sure he's preaching the gospel. He knows it. He's convinced of it. But he goes to consult with these guys in Jerusalem just to make absolutely certain. And then in verse 3 of chapter 2, he makes this great statement. Titus, who is a Greek, he's a Gentile, he's not Jewish. Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Paul tells these churches at Lystra, Derby, and other cities there, Iconium, southern Galatia, that circumcision isn't necessary, you don't have to follow the law. And he knows this because he went and had a meeting already with these guys in Jerusalem. He took Titus along with him. And again, if you think it's awkward talking about whether or not you're circumcised, imagine a conversation that goes something like this. Hey, guys, I'm just checking. What do you think about circumcision? And before you answer, you know how sometimes you want to stop somebody from walking into a trap. Before you answer, I just want you to know my good friend Titus is clearly saved, clearly a Christian, and he's not circumcised, and uh, he's prepared to show you if necessary. (laughs) Again, awkward conversation, but the argument is still valid. We don't have to be circumcised in order to be saved. He says that to the churches in Galatia, And he says the church in Jerusalem and the apostles and the elders who were gathered there did not force Titus to be saved, to be circumcised, to be circumcised. Now Titus is here, and we're going to add Timothy to the mix. We've got the Jerusalem council's verdict, and we've got Titus, who was not circumcised, and yet Paul still insists on circumcising Timothy. Why? In order to answer that question, we need to look a little bit more carefully at why Titus was not circumcised. And to the churches of Galatia, Paul writes that Titus wasn't forced to be circumcised because he was a Greek. Notice that. He was a Greek. He goes on to say, because the false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. 
Paul is saying we've encountered this argument already. And we did not allow Titus to be circumcised because there was a principle involved, and that principle was this. Salvation is by grace. It is the gift of God, not of works. Nothing we do could ever earn our standing with the Lord. And as they were trying to force Titus to be circumcised, Paul says, we resisted, we refused, we did not give in for one second so that there would be no shadow, no trace, no stain whatsoever, no confusion over what is necessary for salvation. And it's this, simply believing and having faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing we do could ever earn our pardon. Christ has earned it all on the cross. There was a principle involved, but additionally, Titus was Gentile. He wasn't even Jewish. He was a Greek. Timothy is Jewish. And additionally, the text here in Acts chapter 16 tells us that a part of the reason, if not the entire reason, for why Paul wanted Timothy to be circumcised was because of certain Jews that were living in those cities. It almost certainly has to do with a reception being welcomed there in those synagogues to preach the gospel. Look more closely at what verse 3 says. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because, notice that, this is the reason given by Scripture. Because of the Jews who were in those places. And it's not just because there are Jews there. These Jews know who Timothy is. It says, because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was Greek. So, this is a problem. We know from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, that Timothy's mother was a Jewish woman named Eunice, which is not a Jewish name. Eunice is a Greek name. It means conquering well, and it's associated with Greek mythological characters. The fact that you have a Jewish girl born to Jewish parents given a Greek name indicates most likely that her family was not very pious in its observance of Jewish traditions and Jewish customs, it indicates that perhaps they were not faithful followers of God, that they were not God-fearing Jews. There are other reasons to think that there might have been some problem here. Timothy's father is expressly mentioned here as being Greek. Jews are not permitted to marry Greek men or Gentile men. It certainly happened in the diaspora, but it was probably very uncommon. Probably didn't happen all that often. And any time that it did happen, there was almost certainly a degree of ostracism, criticism that went with it. Why? Why would that be the case? The Old Testament gives a prohibition against marrying someone who does not share the same faith as you. God says to the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. 
for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. We hear sometimes young people saying, I'm going to date this person. I know they're not a Christian, but nothing is going to shake me from my faith in God. The scriptures affirm in both the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament that followers of the Lord are to marry only other Christians, those who fear God. The scriptures give this explicit command. If the Israelites going into Canaan marry Canaanites, they're not going to come out of that marriage relationship worshiping Yahweh. They're going to come out of that marriage relationship worshiping Canaanite gods. And their children are going to worship Canaanite gods. Uh, The emphasis in the scriptures is not that through marriage, somehow you're going to influence an unbeliever to become a God-fearer. Rather, the scriptures are quite clear. The trajectory of that relationship is that those relationships, that marriage is going to lead you to following away from God. Again, the prohibition is repeated in Joshua chapter 23, verse 12. And the trajectory that is emphasized there in Joshua assumes and expects that marrying the Canaanites is going to lead you away from following the Lord with your whole heart. You're going to have to compromise in that relationship. And this plays out multiple times in the Old Testament. Just think about it. In Genesis chapter 24, we see the great lengths that Abraham goes to, to combine with God's amazing provision to his prayers, to ensure that his son Isaac marries a God-fearing girl in Rachel, uh, sorry, Rebecca, in Rebecca. We also see it in Genesis chapter 27, 46, and 28. We see Rebecca and Isaac's disgust at the marriage of her son to a Canaanite Hittite woman. They are repulsed by this idea. And it's not racist, it's not racism, it's religious. They know that as their son enters into that marriage, it's going to lead him to compromising and turning away from God. In Genesis chapter 34, verses 8 to 9. Hamor invites the sons of Jacob to intermarry with the daughters of Shechem, which is a town that has just proved its character in the mistreatment of Dinah. But to intermarry with this town rather than to distance themselves from it would have resulted in defilement. It would have been the ultimate compromise. And so uh, you see there in that text, they they don't do that. Not that what they ended up doing was much more righteous, but they certainly don't enter into intermarriage with these people. Intermarriage is also the downfall of kings. We see it from the super-wise Solomon to other kings such as Ahab. We see it over and over again. And in fact, we find, as we're working our way through the Old Testament, that in Ezra chapters 9 and 10, the people repent of their intermarriage. They recognize that that has been one thorn in their side that has led them to turning away from the Lord They repent of it, and God receives that repentance and begins to bless and to heal them. For you or I to think that we can enter into a relationship with an unbeliever, that we can marry them, and that in due time, somehow we'll influence them to become a Christian, is asinine. That reveals a heart of pride and arrogance, and it does not humbly depend on the clear instructions of the Lord. Eunice has married a Greek Gentile man, 
and her son is not circumcised according to Jewish law. If you're going to preach the gospel to Jews and they already know who you are and they already know that you are not Greek and you are Jewish but not obeying the Jewish law of circumcision and they know that you come from a family background that is compromised, that has been compromised for quite some time, how likely are you to listen to that person? How likely are you to consider the proclamation that Jesus is the fulfillment of an Old Testament law when you yourself have never been faithful to that law? You see, the suggestion could be made that what Timothy is doing in proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ is really just an attempt to justify his own continued rebellion against following Yahweh. Oh, how convenient now that Jesus has come. We don't have to be circumcised. And here you are, a young man in your early 20s, getting off the hook. Likely story. You see, the issue is not for Paul... The issue, or Timothy for that matter, the issue is not that Timothy needs to be circumcised. The issue is one of credibility with the people that they want to proclaim the gospel to. Do you see that, church? I hope that you see that. And this leads us to a certain conclusion. Timothy was circumcised to prevent his being rejected by the Jews which he wanted to share the gospel with. But on another occasion, the Titus was prohibited from being circumcised. He was Greek. He was Gentile. And so we see something here from Galatians chapter 2 to Acts chapter 16. When it is a matter of upholding the truth of the gospel, when it is a matter of principle, whenever there is someone saying, you have to do this, we find that upholding the gospel leads Christians to opposing whatever restriction, whatever requirement anyone else might place upon God. We do not have to because Christ has done it all. But by the same token, because we are free in Christ, if observing certain customs, if following certain Rules will get our foot through the door in order to proclaim Christ. So long as there's no confusion in our own mind that we're doing this in order to curry favor with the Lord, we're free to do those things in order to preach the gospel. Over the course of my years working in the church, serving the Lord, I've gone on many, many mission trips. And anytime there's a mission trip, there is a general call that goes out to the church. We're planning a mission trip to go here. Everybody gather around. We'll tell you what you have to do in order to go. And generally, you have to fundraise. You have to, you know, get your passport. There are certain restrictions and things you have to look after. But 
I cannot imagine the level of commitment that is necessary to go with Paul on a missionary journey than the requirement that he puts down here for Timothy in Acts chapter 16, that as a young adult, in a day and age in which there's no anesthesia, no modern surgical convenience, this guy has to undergo a very painful medical procedure in order to be accepted, to be welcomed, to be allowed the opportunity to proclaim the gospel. Timothy does it not because he has to, not because it's necessary for salvation. Timothy does it because he wants to go with Paul and he wants the opportunity and the privilege to proclaim the gospel to these Jewish fellow countrymen of his. I can't help but ask the question then this morning. If Timothy is willing to go to such great lengths just to gain a hearing for the gospel, to what lengths are we prepared to go? To what lengths are we prepared to go to tell people about Jesus? The world is a very different place today than it was 50 years ago, than it was just 10 years ago. Evangelism today is going to require commitment from us. If we're going to gain a hearing for the gospel, do you want to know what? We're going to have to be prepared to be ridiculed and mocked and belittled or potentially worse for the sake of our faith in Christ. Millennials, the group born around 1980 that came of age in 2000, Millennials used to be the group that churches and ministries were going after with a passion. This was the generation that we were all trying to evangelize. And now, millennials, this is my generation, we're all sort of grown up. We're 38, 39, 40 years old. And guess what? We're poised now, my generation, to take the place of the baby boomer generation, which was the largest generation. The baby boomer generation is largely entering into retirement homes and has largely finished from active, sustained ministry in the church. It's now the millennials who are charged and tasked with the responsibility of doing the heavy lifting when it comes to evangelism. And guess what? They aren't doing it. My generation, I'm talking to anyone in this room, 35 to 45, you are notoriously horrible at sharing your faith. The statistics show it. A recent research study from Barna Group, as well as the creators of Alpha Course, offered some incredibly disappointing news. 20-somethings and 30-somethings now on deck to carry out the faith. Nearly of those, of those in that age bracket, 47% of them, practicing Christians, individuals who go to church on a weekly basis and consider religion to be an important and indispensable part of their lives, now believe that evangelism is morally wrong. They're more than twice as likely as their parents and their grandparents, that is the boomer and elder generations respectively, to say that, quote, it's wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in the hope that they will one day share the same faith as you. End quote. Here is a man in Acts chapter 16 who is going to be circumcised without anesthesia 
in a day and age which I'm not even really sure how it gets well known that you're circumcised, all for the sake of being able to tell people about Jesus. You don't do that unless you have the heart and the desire for these people to get saved. You don't do that unless your heart is so committed to loving them that you're going to go to any lengths necessary to serve them. You're going to go so far as getting a surgical procedure done just so you can tell them about Christ. Fast forward to 2020 in which now we take polls and surveys and we are so seeped and saturated in relativism and pluralism that we've now bought in the lie that there is no definitive truth, there are many truths, and it is morally wrong now for me as a Christian to tell someone else that the only hope they have is Christ. That's tragic. We ought to weep And as we look at the book, as we consider Acts, there is no excuse for anyone bearing the name of Christ to ever, ever come to the conclusion that we don't need to tell people about Jesus that it's somehow morally wrong to do so. Christ died that this news would be told. Christ died that we could be saved. And Christ commands those who follow him to take that good news to the ends of the earth. I want to caution you. We are not living in the 50s. Now, that might seem incredibly obvious. But for some of us, our approach to evangelism reveals a mindset that is still rooted in the 50s. Our world has changed. And there are two wrong assumptions that we need to confront. Number one, do not assume that here in Kamloops or Canada that we are living in a pre-Christian culture. Timothy in the first century is living in a pre-Christian culture. A pre-Christian culture is a culture that has never heard about Jesus Christ and is hearing about him for the first time. We don't live in that world. We live in a post-Christian culture. We live in a day and age in which people now see Christianity as oppressive, as violence, as something to be shunned and silenced and shunted aside, we now have stories of so-called former Christian evangelicals who are deconverting from Christianity and are telling their deconversion stories the same way that you and I might share testimonies leading up to something like a baptism. This is a different world than the world that Timothy lived in. If Timothy was prepared to go to the extent of circumcision to get the opportunity to proclaim a gospel to people who had never heard about Christ and was fully prepared to accept stonings and imprisonments and all the persecutions that go along with that, we had better come to terms with our apathy in comparison to Timothy in regards to our refusal to share the gospel in a world that has heard about Jesus and is looking for opportunities to shut Christians down. And don't underestimate. Here's the second thing. Do not underestimate that how, how 
post-Christian we are. You might be thinking to yourself today, well, okay, we're post-Christian, but we're just a little bit post-Christian. No, we're significantly post-Christian. In the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and 80s, when Billy Graham was doing his evangelistic crusades, he would often say, he was known, it was famous, this phrase, come down, walk the aisle, pray with someone, don't worry, the buses will wait. Raise your hand if you recall Billy Graham saying something like that. Yeah, about, about 70% of you. The buses will wait. That was like his famous line. Come down, the buses will wait. But do you know what that really means? You see, the buses are from churches. That means that the people that Billy Graham is inviting down are there because they had friends who attended churches. And in fact, many of those people themselves had already been attending churches, but they hadn't yet come to a place where they were believing what their friends believed. And that was the goal and the focus of Billy Graham's ministry. If I pitch a tent down at Riverside Park and I say, come hear the gospel, do you know how many people are going to show up? Not more than three or four, maybe. And most of them are going to be you guys, just there because you pity me. You don't mean to be there all by myself. <laughs> if I were to say something like that in a tent meeting down at Riverside Park, hey, don't worry, the buses will wait. That is totally out of context. People are like, what bus? I, what are you talking about? There is no connection between unbelievers here in the 21st century to Christians in the church. Surveys show that roughly 96% of Canadians claim that they don't know anyone who is a Christian. They don't have friends that stand out to them as being Christian. They don't know people who go to church on Sunday morning. There's no connection, which means we have not really met our neighbors. And we're bearing the fruit of that for however many years now we have been silent, such that there is no overlap between our two worlds. If you're here this morning and you work in a secular profession, God bless you. You have a great opportunity to share your faith, to proclaim the gospel. You say, Pastor, it might cost me my job. Your silence will cost them their souls for eternity. But I really want you to look at this text with me this morning in conclusion in a different way. I say all those things to you about the fact that we've done a horrible job sharing our faith. I say all these things to you about the fact that we largely have not befriended the world around us, and there are people now in Canadian culture who don't know Christians. And you hear all that, you recognize deep in your soul, you got this responsibility to go out there and to share the gospel. You know that's what you ought to be doing. And in effect, what I've just done is I've just guilted you. I've just basically placed, if you were watching closely, I've just placed a little law into your life in the midst of a chapter that's all about grace. Let's stop for a moment and step back and think, why did Timothy do this? Why did Timothy undergo circumcision? 
Was it because he felt guilted into it? This is what Paul's doing. I need to do it because Paul is doing it. I, you know, I, I'm just trying to be a good Christian here. Well, he was already a pretty good guy. We know this because his reputation had already spread to the town next door. He was already working hard in the church. He was already serving the Lord. And circumcision is a pretty big step, guys. I don't think he's undergoing circumcision because he's guilted into it. Why does Paul want to take him? Why does Paul want Timothy to have the opportunity to preach the gospel all across the Roman Empire? Don't flip there, but just listen. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, makes this statement, and listen all the way to the end. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant. Greek word there is doulos, better translated slave. He says, though I am free from all, I have made myself a slave to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being under the law myself, that I might win those who are under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. I did this that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some of them. We hear that, we quote that, we know that, but that is not the end of the verse. That is not even the most powerful statement in the verse. Paul is saying, I have become all things to all people that by some means, any means, by the grace of God, I might win some of them. Why? Last statement. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. The point that Paul is making is not that he is engaged in evangelism because that's what he needs to do in order to be a good Christian. If that's your mindset when you're reading Paul, you must be thinking Paul is the most tortured slave out there. He just is working his tail off in order to be considered a good apostle. And that is not the case at all. That is not Paul's mentality. We see it in multiple places in Corinthians as well as in all of his letters. He's preaching the gospel that people might be saved, that he might rejoice and delight in their friendship. He is doing it out of love. He is sacrificing and serving because in his mind, there's a greater treasure. The treasure is not that he's trying to do something to make himself acceptable to God. The treasure is that he's doing this, that he might make new friends, new brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, I do it for the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. Now that phrase right there captures just exactly what Dr. John Piper was talking about when he made the statement, missions exists because worship does not. If our heart is to walk with God, to delight in him, to praise him, we cannot but help 
the more of him we see, we cannot but help to share him with others. C.S. Lewis, writing in his book, Reflections on the Psalms, makes this incredibly powerful statement about the book of Psalms, a book of praise, a book of worship. The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or of anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. The world rings with praise, lovers praising their mistresses, readers praising their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. Praise of the weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical parsonages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praised most, while the cranks, the misfits, and the malcontents praised least. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Your wife walks in the room. She's beautiful. Do you not turn to your friend next to you and say, isn't she good looking? We behold, Pastor Al says amen, Fifty over fifty years married now, Amen. Fifty-six years. Give give Pastor Al to our house. Sheila is indeed a beautiful lady, but Jesus is more beautiful to behold. Trying to segue back here, <laughs> trying to get us back on track. When we look at Christ if we really see him for who he is in all his glory, there ought not to be this legalistic obligation, oh no, now I gotta go tell people about him. You're not set free in that moment. You're still under the law. When we see Christ in all his glory, if we see him as he really is, he will so captivate us and marvel our eyes and we cannot help but turn to our neighbor and say to them, do you see him? A man who came over having escaped Soviet communism in Ukraine was named by Miralov Slovev, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. And Miralov found Christ while he was in the United States in 1950. And do you want to know what he did with his freedom? No longer obligated to live under a curfew, no longer restricted in terms of his movements where he could go, no longer dictated to in terms of what kind of career he would need to have. Do you know what he did with his freedom? He went to seminary, and then he went back to Ukraine. 
And on the day that the Iron Curtain fell, and that Soviet communism was falling all across Europe, Miralov was there telling his countrymen, this is freedom, it tastes great, but there's something that is better. A freedom that can only be found in Jesus Christ. Church, if that's the freedom you long for, then you will also spontaneously, unstoppably share about that freedom with your neighbors. Let's not talk of Christ out of obligation. Let's talk of Christ out of delight. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we pray this morning that as we look at Timothy, we would see here a man who knows full well that he does not have to be circumcised, and yet he's clearly doing it at the urging of his mentor, the prompting of the Apostle Paul. But we see, Lord, that he's clearly doing it because he has his eyes set on something better. He has his eyes on seeing people and having the opportunity to see some of them come to faith, that he might be brother to them and closer to you. Lord, our prayer this morning is that you would set us free, that we would behold your glory, that we would worship you, and that we would be filled with such passion that there would be no price that would be too high, that there would be nothing that we would not be willing to do in order to gain a hearing with our friends and our family and our neighbors in order to tell them about your son. Work in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
Several years before Timothy sees Paul again on the second missionary journey, his church would have received a letter from Paul encouraging them to continue to walk in the freedom that Christ had given to them that he had purchased on the cross. And Timothy would have heard these words read, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. In other words, don't give in to the demand that you need to be circumcised in order to be saved. And yet, just a few verses later, that same apostle would write, You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. This morning, as we prepare to close our worship service, I just want to encourage you all to know that when we step out in obedience to Christ, there is joy in the offering. There is reward. There is blessing. And nobody knew this better than Jesus. And the author of the book of Hebrews says, regarding Christ, let us look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pursue that joy, and let's pursue it together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask this morning that as we, as we conclude this time of corporate worship, that our worship of you would not end individually, but that as we go from this place, we would just continue to look at you, Lord, that we will continue to see how you have provided for every need, that you have taken care of our every want, that you, Lord, are watching over us because you love us. And Lord, as we reflect upon what you did for us, help us, Lord, to marvel so much in your beauty that we can't help but share that good news with those around us. Lord, give us hearts of praise that lead to mission not a call to missions that demands praise. Lord, we pray you do this in the name of your son. Amen. There's coffee outside in the tent. And again, just a quick reminder as you're about to leave, we've got the chosen movie showing on Wednesday evening at 730 and ladies Bible study and all those good things. We love you. God bless you and have a great week. 